All right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the Scriptures. Every week we open up the Bible, we spend a a central portion of our time together studying the Scriptures. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. He's not abandoned us. He still speaks today. We hear his voice as we look at the Scriptures. So open up your Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 2, one of the most depressing and scary books of the Bible, okay? If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs, and we'll be on page 201. Uh, We're going to kind of get an intro to the book from Judges 2, and then we're going to look primarily at the story in 6, 7, and 8 to kind of center you contextually on where we are as a church. If you're new, we've been studying this summer a series we've called Ancient Faith. What we've done is we've looked at the outline of Hebrews chapter 11, and what the author to Hebrews is telling us is that we live by faith just like the Old Testament heroes lived by faith. They longed for God's salvation. They longed for him to give them true home and true true rest in himself, just as we long for that. And so the author to Hebrews is saying, how much more should we run to God by faith now that we know more of the details? We know the explicit answers of how God has saved us and how he's provided for us by sending Jesus to take our sins, by sending Jesus to rise from the dead, and conquer sin and death once and for all. And so that's the overall, uh, overall message of Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews 11. So we've been skipping around and looking at Old Testament Bible stories to see these Old Testament heroes of faith. This week, we're going to look at Gideon. Gideon. How many of you have ever heard of Gideon? Old Testament hero? Okay, a lot of you. All right. A lot of you have heard these Sunday school messages. We're going to be skipping through a lot of the material today. Uh, as I said, I want to start with chapter 2 to kind of get the context of Judges, but I'm calling the sermon this week, Cut Down Idols. Cut Down Idols. So here's an object lesson for you. How many of you lost a tree during the ice storm this year? Raise your hand if you lost a tree. Okay, a few of you, the rest of you are renters. You also lost trees, you just don't know about it, right? Okay, everybody lost trees. Well, anyway, we had a tree that even before the ice storm, it was getting bad. And it made us so sad because it was a beautiful tree. It was like the tree that turned colors. We don't have a lot of those in central Texas, you know. We have some bushes, and occasionally you'll see some trees that turn those beautiful colors. This one turned red. It was gorgeous. Um, But it was just sick. It, like, wasn't growing for years. I noticed we've been in this house 15 years now. I noticed it wasn't really growing, and then the bark started to get weird and discolored, you know, and then some of the branches wouldn't sprout new leaves, and it was just getting worse and worse. It was a diseased tree. And so finally, I had to cut it down, not because I'm a judgmental, violent man, but because I wanted to contain the disease, right? I didn't want it to spread to the other trees and the other bushes. Um, It was dying. It was a merciful thing for me to cut it down. Um, There's another analogy for this. Some of you have had cancer, right? Maybe you've had a growth on your skin, and the doctor was like, hey, I know you're scared of scalpels, but we need to cut that out, right? Right? And it's the merciful thing for the doctor to cut that out. Well, in the same way, it's merciful, it's gracious that God would ask us to cut idols out of our lives. Because idols, idols are false gods. Those are powers that we think will save us, but they won't. They'll hurt us. They'll enslave us in destructive patterns. And so, again and again, the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, calls us to trust God as the true God and to cut out these other competing gods, these false gods. Prime directive in Exodus chapter 20, it's the first commandment. It says, have no other gods before me. And Martin Luther famously would say that whenever you violate one of the Ten Commandments, what you've done is you've already violated the first commandment that says don't worship other gods, right? It's like if you lie, it's not just about lying, it's actually that you saw some other god to be more valuable And serving that God was so important to you. Serving that Savior, whether it was popularity or money or comfort or pleasure, that was more important to you than serving Jesus. So that led you to violate the other commandments. And it works this way with all the commandments. And I think Luther's quite brilliant when we look at this. So we're going to see this overarching emphasis in this story, which is about Old Testament battles and weird stories of heroes. It's going to tell us we need to cut the idols out of our life. Now, how are we going to make the jump from weird Middle Eastern stuff to the modern day? There's a, there's a cultural gap there. So here's some things I just kind of want to lay out before we look at the text. Um, number one, Old Testament wars, violence. We're going to see some of that in this story. Old Testament wars of judgment were always 
after long years of mercy and God and his people pleading for people to change and come to him for salvation. So people were hurting people, engaging in wickedness, and the wars were never just like ethnic cleansing, right? That's, that's what your college professor might say. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Actually, read the Bible in context. I want to challenge you. Don't just hear what people say online about how terrible the Bible is. Read it for yourself and treat it like a real book. Don't just read a chapter out of context, right? So we want to take this in context. There's always mercy. There's always pleading. And so these wars only took place in that sort of context. I'd love to talk to you more about it after because I know I'm just kind of jumping over these big ideas. Another thing we need to understand The New Testament does affirm just war theory. What is that? The general idea is that there are times when violence is appropriate. The New Testament affirms this in Romans chapter 13 by saying that God has given the power to governments to have soldiers and police that enforce laws and keep evil at bay. So this is, the New Testament affirms this. Christians disagree, you know, on the details of how we apply this, but it's important for you because many of you are soldiers, right? And so God does give what's called the power of the sword, right? The power of violence to soldiers and police to hold back evil in the world. But that's a different jurisdiction than the jurisdiction that the church has, right? We are not going to call people to Jesus with the power of the sword. We're not going to teach Sunday school with the power of the sword, right? And so on the one hand, the New Testament affirms your role if you're a soldier or if you're a policeman you have a right and just role to fulfill righteously, right? According to God's laws. But that's different than the role that we have as God's people. And that can get confusing because many of you are both God's people and you wield the power of the sword as a soldier. So it's different jurisdictions. I think that's the best way to think about it. You operate in one sphere as a soldier. You operate in another sphere as a messenger of God. And as you call people to Jesus, you're giving them grace. You're praying for them. You're preaching the word of God. You're not using a sword and saying, hey, come to Jesus Here's my gun, right? You better serve Jesus. That's not how we do it. And throughout Christian history, Christians have mangled that here and there. Um, And then finally, we fight with spiritual weapons. If you want to know how we fight, go to Ephesians 6. We'll kind of sprinkle this in throughout our talk today. But we today in the New Testament, we fight with spiritual weapons. Ephesians 6 says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there's a spiritual battle going on, and that's what we're engaged in. And so as God's people, we fight through prayer, through the loving and the teaching and the obeying of God's word, through trusting God by faith, through cutting out idols and running to Jesus in trust. So so these are the weapons of warfare for God's people, trusting his Holy Spirit. Okay, with all that as background, we're only eight minutes in. Okay, let's read Judges chapter two. Again, the Black Bibles, this is page 201. Judges chapter two, this will be kind of an introduction to kind of what Judges is all about. Judges is like the R-rated pulp fiction of the Bible. Okay, scary stories. There's some great heroes, but there's also like just creepy stuff that happens. Gideon's not as bad as a lot of them, so I picked Gideon. Um, But there's some scary ones. There's some weird stories here. Um, So let's get the overall pattern of Judges. What's going on in this book, right? What's it about? Judges chapter 2, we'll read verses 10 through 19, okay? Judges 2, 10 through 19. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Okay, so this is the transition out of Joshua. Exodus is God's people are rescued from slavery, Joshua is they come in to the promised land and they conquer in the Lord's name. They start to occupy the promised land. And then now Judges picks up and it's like, all right, next generation, they don't know who God is anymore. So that's, that's the context. We'll keep going here, verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Some people say Baal, that's the Hebrew pronunciation, or Baal, more of the English way of saying it. These are false gods. That, that's what the Baals are. They abandoned the Lord, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, terrorists, pirates, that kind of thing. And it goes on. And says, he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Let's pause for a second there. 
Uh, we're going to pick back up at verse 15, but he gave them over to their enemies. So God's wrath is, is not always a lightning bolt of judgment. Sometimes, Romans 1 talks about this, God's wrath is saying, okay, you want to serve other gods? You want to serve other comforters, other saviors? I'm going to give you over and let you enjoy those things. I'm going to give you over to the desires and the longings of your heart. And so we often think God's wrath is like, I did a wrong thing, whack, he gets me, right? But that's not how it's described in Romans 1. God's wrath is saying, oh, okay, you want to live life without me? Here you go, this, this is life without me. And that's what's happening here. Verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. The word judge is not just a guy deciding a court case with a gavel. That's how we use it in our culture. But judge in Hebrew had a broader context. It's more like superhero, savior, king, judge, rescuer. Okay, it kind of encompasses a much broader kind of chief ruler, leader kind of concept. So the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So we have a pattern. They would call out to God. God would feel sorry for them. God's gracious. He's merciful. He'd rescue them. He'd raise up a leader, a hero, a judge. He'd rescue them. And then they'd forget God again, and they'd turn from him. And God would then give them over to these false gods. And then when they called out to him, he'd save them again. Guys, we have a similar pattern in our world and in our lives where we turn to these other gods. We think, man, money is going to save me. Career is going to save me. Relationships are going to save me. They're going to make everything okay. And we turn to them as our saviors. And God says, okay, if you, if you want to do life out of trust, not walking with me, I'll, I'll give you over to those saviors and, and you'll see how that goes. And it often causes us much pain and grief. And we're like, man, I've hit rock bottom. This is crazy. This is not working. And we call out to God and he saves us. Uh, the message of judges, I think, calls on us to, to long for a permanent judge, a permanent savior who will rescue us forever. And of course, we know the answer to that one. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the the text in more detail. God, we thank you that you love us and you give us these words, and we confess that some of these stories are harder, more distant, more difficult for us to understand. Um, So God, we just pray that you would meet us in this time supernaturally by your Spirit, that you would help us to have uh, patience, um, open-mindedness, that you'd give us a listening ear, a heart that's tender before you. Um, Lord, teach us. Uh, We want to know you. We want to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got this big idea, this pattern of them turning away, turning back, turning away, turning back. With the Gideon story here, we've got this central concept I really want to focus on of cutting down idols, right? Saying, okay, let's get rid of those false gods and turn to God and trust him as the true God, the true savior, the true hero in our lives. The reason I'm really pinpointing that as the theme and the title for today is because Gideon's name literally means cut down or cutter downer. I don't know the best way to say that. Um, The word in Hebrew is pretty flexible, kind of like cut in our language, right? We can use cut for like, I'm going to cut my hair or cut my beard. That's kind of a minor thing, right? Versus, you know, a soldier cut down his enemies, right? Or a guy in the football field cuts down the other team, you know? So it can be used in, in more and less violent ways. And this term generally in the Old Testament had the sense of like a hero cutting down his enemies, all right? So that's what Gideon means, the guy that chops, the guy that cuts, the guy that hacks away at his enemies. And one of the first things God asks him to do before 
he fights the other army is he asks him to cut down an idol that's right there in the middle of their village, right? So God's people, in our mind, we think of God's people kind of in a static sense, like they served God and sometimes they rebelled, but there were long periods of time where they just, they turned to completely different religions. They were setting up these uh, poles and, and these idols and these statues and they were bowing down to other gods, just like we do. The only difference between us and them is we typically don't make statues out of them, right? That's really the only difference. We worship other heroes. We worship other saviors. We worship money, sex, and power. We just typically don't make statues out of them and put them in the middle of our living room. So we have the same issue we struggle with here. So here's the outline. As we look at the Gideon story, it's going to be in chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Judges, okay? So just flip over a couple of pages, chapter 6, 7, and 8, and here's our outline. Number one, cut down idols when you're afraid. We're going to see that in chapter 6. Cut down idols when you're afraid. Gideon has this name of like this hero that cuts things down, but he was afraid. Number two, cut down idols by God's power. It's not by how awesome we are that we obey God and run to him. It's by his grace, his power. So we cut down idols by God's power. Number three, we'll be in chapter eight, cut down idols is a lifelong work. Cut down idols is a lifelong work. We have to like, we have to keep doing it, right? It's not like you cried at camp and came to Jesus and then everything's fine. You, you have to like keep getting up and serving Jesus day after day. You have to keep trusting him, keep running to him, keep praying to him. It's a lifelong endeavor. And Gideon struggled with that a little bit. All right. Chapter six, cut down idols when you are afraid. First point, Gideon's afraid, but God honors him, shows grace to him. So Judges chapter six is on page 205 of the Black Bibles. Judges chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. We're skipping over a lot of crazy stuff again. Please go read this on your own time. There's, there's a lot more here. It's an interesting story. It makes a lot of good Sunday school stories. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So he's beating out wheat. Uh, the way that you get the grain out of the wheat typically um, is you would thresh the grain up in the wind, right? So you do it on a hill maybe or in some place where the wind was blowing because uh, the husk over the kernel of wheat is like this fine paper. And when you like smash it and throw it in the wind, it'll separate. So this is how they would do it. Um, but what's he doing here? He's doing it down in a wine press, which would have been like this stone thing where they would have pressed out the grapes, right? So it's like more like down in the ground in some stone and like almost like a cave. Why does it say he's doing that? Because he's hiding from the Midianites, right? So we start off with, here's Gideon and he's afraid, right? He's afraid of the Midianites. This is our great hero. He's hiding in the wine press. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord, this is Yahweh, the very personal covenant name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. The Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. Isn't that a beautiful contrast? And guys, I think this is a great application for us. Like here we are, we're so afraid. We're so afraid of losing our health. We're so afraid of losing our retirement. We're so afraid of things going wrong in our life. We're so afraid of relational problems. We're so afraid of conflict at work. We're hiding in the wine press and God is like, Hey, mighty man of valor. <laughs> hey, hero, I've got some stuff for you to do. We're like, are you, are you talking to me, right? <laughs> I think you've got the wrong guy. And that's basically what he's going to say here. Mighty man of valor. This is how God addresses him. This, is, this shows the way that God speaks blessing and grace into our lives that we do not deserve, okay? We do not deserve. Those of you that are actual heroes in the room, you're like, yeah, that's what God says to me. Well, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he says, mighty man of valor, verse 13, Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Do you see that honest question from Gideon? Some of you are here and you're not sure about God. You don't know who Jesus really is. Maybe a friend invited you. You have real questions about the faith. We are so glad you're here. Again and again, heroes of the faith in the Bible are the people that ask God these hard questions. Like, God, if, if you're our savior, why is the world messed up, right? God, if you're so good, why is my life so hard? God, if you're good, why do I not see you 
operating in my daily life the way that I think you should. And I want you to know that, that you can ask God those questions. You can pray honest prayers. You don't have to wait to talk to God until you have everything figured out. Run to him with your confusion and your pain and your doubt. The Psalms show this pattern again and again. This is how we pray. This is how we sing. God, where are you? How long, O Lord? Yet I will praise you. So Gideon just straight up is like, well, where are you, God? What's going on? So he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I've told you all this before. The Lord rescuing his people from Egypt is like the cross. It's the rescue flag of the Old Testament. And so we today look back and we see that Jesus has saved us. And when we doubt God, we can look back at the story of the cross. And we're like, he sent us Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave. That's how we remember God's mighty acts of salvation. In the Old Testament, they would look back at the Exodus. God saved us. Remember, he saved us. And yet, just like then... Gideon's asking this question. We can ask a question today. Okay, I've heard, like my grandma told me that Jesus died for me, but I'm not, I'm not feeling very saved right now. And that's the kind of question that Gideon is asking. Like our forefathers said that, that God saved us out of Egypt, but, but now we're getting terrorized by the Midianites. What, what's going on? How do we make sense of this? Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? God's like, okay, you got what you need, but he's also like, I'm, I'm sending you. Don't doubt me, right? If God asks us to do something, he'll equip us along the way. It'll work out, okay? Don't hesitate. But verse 15, this is Gideon's answer. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And here's the Lord's answer, verse 16. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Do you hear that? It's the most common promise of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God says, I will be with you. Do you believe that? God says, I will be with you. To Gideon, he says, I will be with you. You'll strike the Midianites as one man. What's he saying? These thousands will be like one guy. Build it. It's like it's like fighting one person. Just trust me. I will be with you. And that'll be the second point, right? It's God's power, not Gideon's power. But I want to just kind of sit for a minute here in the fearfulness of Gideon. It's really amazing. Gideon tests God multiple times. You've probably heard the story about the fleeces, where he's like, lay out the fleece and make it wet and then make it dry, and he's asking for miracles from God. He's asking for miracles to prove that God's really going to be with him. He keeps asking for further proofs and further tests. And I've said throughout our series this summer, we don't imitate everything that we see in Old Testament characters. We don't necessarily say just because they did it, then that makes it okay. You know, Jesus makes it pretty clear when he's tempted by the serpent that we should not put the Lord our God to the test. And so I think generally it's not a good idea to, when God asks us to do something, keep saying, I'm not going to do it until you do this, right? I don't think that's a good idea in your interaction. So as you, as you go back and reread this story, I just encourage you to recognize, take it with a grain of salt. There's like some things he does that I'm not sure that we should imitate, right? But what's amazing is even as Gideon does what I think was the wrong thing several times, what does God do? He shows him grace and more grace and more grace. And God keeps saying, I will be with you. You doubt that I will be with you? I will be with you. You're not sure if I will be with you? I will be with you. And I want you to hear that word from God this morning. The, the clearest way that God has said that is by sending the Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? We always talk about this at Christmas. It means God is with us. How do we know God is with us? Jesus. That's how we know. If you have doubts, look to the cross. Look to the stories of Jesus. Read about Jesus. Read the Gospels. Interact with Jesus for yourself. It's a great place to start to wrestle with, okay, I struggle with this. I'm not sure about Christianity. You know, I don't like the Crusades. I don't like the, the wars in the Old Testament. I don't like this. I don't like that. Read the stories of Jesus. Make your fight with Jesus. Wrestle with him. Look at what he's done. Look at how he lived. Look at how he talked to people. Look at how he died. Look at how he rose from the dead.
Well, we see this beautiful example of Gideon then kind of moving forward and obeying God and cutting down the idol in the middle of their village. It says in verse 27, Gideon took 10 men of his servants. He needed a lot of help apparently to do this. 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So I'm skipping over the text where God says, cut down the idols. Before you fight the other army and save Israel from Midian first, I want you to cut down this false god in the middle of your village. And I think an application here, number one is, we can cut down idols even when we're afraid. We can get rid of the false gods in our lives even when you and I feel like, but God, I'm not going to survive. If I don't continue to trust in this money or this relationship or this drug or whatever it is, I won't make it. I want you to know Gideon felt the same way and all the heroes of the Bible feel the same way. God says, I will be with you. You can get rid of these idols. You can trust me. The other thing that's really interesting here is we see God say, deal with the actual idol before you fight the outside invaders. I think sometimes we jump ahead to trying to fix everything peripherally going on in our lives when God wants us to deal with the heart issues first. I think another pattern of this is in Psalm 51, where we see David, who we'll talk about next week, praying to God and confessing his own sins. And you see this interesting pattern in Psalm 51 where David is talking about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, right? How should we rebuild our society? Society is falling apart. Everything's crazy. Where, where do we start? We start with our heart. We start with our own personal idols. What's the idol in your backyard? God's like, cut that down first. Deal with yourself first. Deal with your own false worship. And then God will build from there. So he's afraid. There are many times in our life where, where we'll be afraid to follow Jesus and trust him. We think we're going to miss out. Uh, one of the images I had as I was thinking through the story of him cutting down the idols at night is I was thinking about Jews that were hiding in attics during the Holocaust. Uh, we watched Jojo Rabbit last year, which is kind of a bizarre movie. I don't know if I can recommend it as a preacher, but I liked it. Um, weird movie about Nazism and the fight against Nazism. It was kind of like almost like a dark comedy, but there was this character hiding in the attic, right? A Jew who was hiding from the Nazis. And this is a trope we see in a lot of literature. You know, a lot of you have read other stories about this and seen other instances of this. Um, The idea was, man, if people know, I'm going to get killed, right? But I'm still going to resist. And I think those stories of World War II and the Holocaust are really helpful for us to think through. It's a little closer to our history than going all the way back to Gideon and his fearfulness of the men of his village killing him, right? So we can connect maybe a little more with these historical stories and say, Would I resist? Would I have the bravery to do the right thing if I thought it meant I would lose my job? Do you have the faithfulness that God will be with you and you can obey him and do the right thing even if it means you might get killed for it? That's what God is calling us to, to say, Jesus, you're worth it no matter what. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to trust in my circumstances as much as I trust in you. Now, the New Testament says we should be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so there's an obvious sense of like, yeah, do what you got to do to stay alive at a basic sense. But Jesus says if there's a choice between comfort and Jesus, we got to go with Jesus, right? And so my question for you are, what are the things that you're afraid of right now? Would you take those to Jesus? Would you just be honest with him about it? Say, Lord, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do next, but I recognize I'm, I'm afraid. These are my fears. Did you just offer those to God? Repeatedly, we see this wrestling match with the Old Testament characters. We want to have that same kind of wrestling match with God and say, God, I'm not sure if I can trust you with this, but here it is. And honestly present those things to him. I was talking to some of our staff and leaders and friends this week about what are the things we're afraid of today when it comes to following Jesus. Uh, Some of the things that were said is we have this fear of God asking us to do something we don't want to do, right? Or we also have this fear of God telling us to give up something we want to keep doing, right? We offer those things to God. The first step is just laying it on the table and being honest about it. I think there's this weird thing that happens in our sin patterns in our life where we think is, as long as I don't talk about it, God won't know this is going on, right? No, he knows, okay? 
He sees it. He knows what's going on. So just be like, all right, God, you got me. Here it is. I don't know what to do about this. First step is offering it to him in prayer. I think another thing that we might worry about is just kind of the fear of missing out. We're in a weird age where we see a lot of things online, you know, social media, and we, we just kind of want to be a, a part of things or, you know, not miss out on things that are going on. Man, we're, we're just going to miss out, right? Just so you know, especially younger people coming out, there's no way to not miss out on some fun things, okay? It's just going to happen. And an extension of that even more is this concept uh, that we're going to not fit in and be weird, right? And so I've kind of got two sides of this I want to address, and we've talked about this many times before. We are the kind of church, and you may be here because of this, we're the kind of church that says, let's minimize that gap between Christian weirdness and our non-Christian friends, right? Let's reduce that gap. Let's try to not be weird if we can, if we can do that, okay? But the other side of it is, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be weird. There's no way to avoid it, okay? So it's like good news, bad news. If you're going to follow Jesus, people are going to think you're weird, The other side of that is like, don't be weird on purpose, okay? (laughs) Like, don't pursue weirdness. The the path to following Jesus is not, I'll be as weird as possible, right? No, don't be weird if it's not necessary, but obey Jesus, right? And so the ethical standards of Jesus, they're weird, right? The world says, obey your heart and your urges. And it's gotten to the point now where it's actually we're told it's psychologically damaging to obey Jesus instead of your own urges. Like, we just have to wrestle with that. That's what our world is saying, which is so, um, I don't want to say the wrong thing, idiotic, maybe? So bizarre to me. Like, no civilization has survived that's maintained that standard. It just doesn't work. And so, just in grace. I know I'm an old grandpa, but just in in grace and kindness to you, that's not going to go well for you. You think that the road to psychological peace is doing whatever you want, but that's never worked for any human beings. In the short term, it can be fun, right? It can be appealing. It can be pleasurable, but it's not long-term what's good for people. And so I just want to invite you to to recognize that fear. Man, I'm afraid I'm going to be weird. Yep, you will be. But Jesus is good. He's worth it. He loves you more than you love yourself. He knows better than you know what you need. Um, I lost my place. It's time to go to the second point. Okay. (laughs) Second point is we cut down idols by God's power. We can't do this on our own, right? So as I talk about offering these things to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I will follow you. I will obey you. We don't obey him and cut down idols and then he loves us. No, we recognize he loved us first. It's by his grace. We're all sinners. We need his grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He pursued us in love first. And then we start obeying him, right? So we see this pattern in the New Testament played out multiple times. And it's kind of illustrated in these Old Testament stories. So God wants everyone to know that it's by him and by his strength that they are going to win this battle. It's not going to be by the power of the Baal or the Ashtaroth or the false gods that Israel has fallen into. And it's not going to be by the power of the the studly soldiers, right? So this one's going to be hard for you soldiers because he's going to violate all like military strategy here, okay? But hang on, he's fine with you being good soldiers, you know, here in the U.S., but when it comes to following Jesus, it's got to be by his power. It can't be by your own strength. It can't be by the power of your weapon. So we'll look at verses two through four. We'll see that we cut down idols by God's strength. So chapter seven, verse two through four. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Just pause there. That does not make sense, right? Here's why God is saying this. There are too many for me to give Midian into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Here's what he's saying. Your soldiers are too many. Your army is too big, Gideon, Israel, you got too many people. You got too many tanks. You got too many guns. We need to cut back. We need to be really clear that this is a supernatural victory. Now, this, again, this doesn't go along with typical military strategy. As I understand it, I've never served, right? But, but I think I understand this part. Like, if you're going into battle, you want to have more guns and more soldiers, right? Isn't that how it works? 
You want to overwhelm the other force. And I would just say, keep going. I appreciate you. Thanks for keeping us safe. Yes, use that strategy um, as you wield the power of the sword as a soldier. But here, God's like, no, this is not how it's going to work for cutting down idols, for defeating God's enemies. This is a different situation we've got. Verse 3. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So he just sent two-thirds of the force away, right? More than that. It's not exact fraction here, but about two-thirds, gone. And he says, this is what I'm doing, again, not to divide up and judge the people uh, a lot of preachers get sidetracked on secondary stuff because later on he's going to divide them up on, on how they drink water, right? And I've heard all kinds of sermons on, you know, the better way to drink water out of a stream and all this stuff. <laughs> I don't think God's too worried about that, really. Um, the main point is God is saying, I don't want you to have too many soldiers. I want this to be a supernatural event. That's really the issue, right? Maybe there's some weird secondary application that the Lord will tell us about in heaven. But I think the main point of this passage is we don't want you to have too many soldiers because I want it to be clear. God is saying that he's the one that's done the rescuing. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 applies this to our salvation, this principle of power, this principle of grace. Nice thunder. The idea is that we can't save ourselves by our own works. It's only God that can save us. So the two big New Testament words for that are faith and grace. Faith means I trust him, not me. Grace means it's his kindness to me, not my earning, not my merit. So these are translations of this power principle. It's God's power that saves me. It's not me. It's not how great I am. It's not how wonderful I am. And so this translates into our own lives where we start to realize, you know what? I need God's grace to save me. I'm not saved based on how good I am or how savable I am. When we apply the how we drink out of the stream and we make it all about like, which soldiers does God love the best? Does God love you when you drink like a dog? Or does God love you when you drink out of your hand, right? Like, that's, that's not the point. And, and let me drive this point further. The point is not like how much of a sinner you are, right? I know a lot of you, a lot of you are like serious sinners, right? But I know some of you others, and you, your sin's not that bad, but you've got some pride problems, right? Because you stand before God and you think, I'm better than other men. I think I'm savable, right? Romans 3.23 says, another thunderbolt. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are savable. Your salvation is not based on how much you sin or how much you don't sin. It's based on Jesus. It's based on God's power. So, So bring that to him. The other thing that's really weird is the way they do battle, right? They had swords. They had some good weapons to use. And God was like, no, don't use the swords. We're going to use some pots and we're going to break the pots. We're going to have some torches. You're going to scream a lot. You're going to blow some trumpets, right? So he takes 300 men against thousands and thousands of Midianite troops. And God just wants it to be real clear that this is a supernatural victory of God. When I was thinking about power and our obsession with our own power, I know this is weird, but I was thinking about the movie Back to the Future. Anyone ever seen the movie Back to the Future? Great film from my childhood. Um, There's this scene where he's got this electric guitar and he's standing in front of this giant amp. Anybody remember that scene? Can you show that picture up on the top there? This amp is like taller than him. It's Marty McFly. He's got the electric guitar going. He's turning it all the way up to 11 and he's going to jam on his electric guitar. Now, those of you that don't know about electric guitars, typically an amp is like this big, okay? So it's like, you know, a foot or two feet high. So this is kind of bizarre. This is not how they really work. But the whole idea is he wants like this great power, right? He, he wants to experience overcoming and, and victory and being stronger than other people. And so it's a humorous scene where he, you know, strums the guitar and he literally like flies across the room. The whole thing explodes. The room falls apart. Stuff goes everywhere. But I was thinking that's kind of a picture of our life, right? Like God says, come to me. And we're like, no, no, I need to build this giant army over here, Right? No, God, I don't have time for you. I need, I need more money. I need more relationships. And I need more relationships after those relationships, right? And we pursue these other gods and we pursue these other powers instead of trusting that he's enough. And so we just need to recognize that we all have these temptations to trust in the power of man, man's strength. Another Old Testament way this is described is 
you know, trusting in chariots and horses instead of trusting in the Lord our God? The question is, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the, the power of the flesh in your own accomplishments or are you trusting in God's power? God is continually inviting us to come back to him. He's going to ask us to do things that we don't feel equipped to do. He's going to say, hey, I want you to obey me. Hey, I want you to pursue my, my narrow but life-giving sexual ethic that's different from the rest of the world. I want you to serve your neighbors. I want you to talk to people about Jesus. I want you to obey my commands and my New Testament principles. And he's going to challenge us in these ways. And we're going to feel like we're not equipped to do it. We're going to think, but God, wouldn't it be easier if I had like more tools, right? Like, can't I have like a bigger utility belt or, you know, some more tools to use, some more power, some more electricity, Lord? Like, this is going to be hard for me to obey you with, with just what you've given me. And he says, no, I, I want it to be clear that it was my power at work in the first place. So the entire book of 2 Corinthians is about this. Paul talks about our ministry in jars of clay, right? We're, we're just, we're fragile, and that's so it's clear that it's not us being awesome, but it's God working through us. It's his power at work. God says, my power is perfected in your weakness. That's what God told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he wants to work through you? He wants his power to flow through you. One of the ways that we can recognize that we might be trusting in idols and trusting in our own power instead of trusting in God is this test where you can say, am I violating God's commandments, right? As I said earlier, Martin Luther says, if you're breaking other commandments, you had to break the first commandment first, right? Am, am I lying? Am I stealing? Am I dishonoring people? Am I murdering? Am I sleeping around? Well, if you're violating those commandments, chances are it's because you see some other power as greater than God, and you're trusting it instead of trusting in him. Another test, which would be more of like, it's like negative test versus positive test. A positive test is, are you living with the joy and the kindness and the love of what Paul describes in Galatians 5? We call it the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. Those are great tests, right? Am I breaking commandments? It's a negative test. Positive test. Am I living with joy, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Am I living out the fruit of the Spirit? These are great tests to say, am I relying on my power or someone else's power or the power of money or the power of success or am I running to God and relying on him? All right, third point. Third point, cut down idols is a lifelong work. Can y'all hear the thunder or is it just me? I'm like, I'm like talking to the thunder. I don't know if y'all can even hear it. Um, Cut down idols is a lifelong work. This is where we see Gideon go bad, um, kind of fail, he reminds me of Solomon. I was talking to my wife this week. I was like, yeah, different scholars, when they study the Bible, they're not sure what to do with Gideon. They're not sure what to do with Solomon. These guys kind of seem to fail. My interpretation is that they continued to be uh, sons of God, right? That God is their only hope, so they, they couldn't have become unsaved, yet they failed publicly. But that's my interpretation um, but this is a tricky thing. It's a thing that a lot of theologians debate, and it's, it's hard, hard to understand. Here we see he definitely failed publicly. There's a tension that we've got to wrestle out as we think about the lifelong work of cutting out idols in our lives. The tension is this. John 10 says that if you belong to Jesus, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. And I want you to see absolute certainty in Jesus and what he's done for you. He's invincible. But then 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians, maybe it's 1st, I think it's 2 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Here's the way I would set that up. If you entrust yourself to Jesus, nothing, nothing can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. You have absolute confidence in Jesus, right? But if you continually, every day in your life are like, I don't love Jesus. I don't trust Jesus. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to do what Jesus says. I'm walking in the opposite direction of Jesus. Chances are you don't trust Jesus, right? Like you haven't entrusted yourself to him. You're not even in his hand. And so in Christian culture, we confuse this because you might have been taught that if you cried at camp or you prayed a prayer that a preacher told you to pray, that you're in his hand. When the Bible actually says, no, you have to trust him. So, so the question I want to ask you is, do you trust him? And then I want to say, continue to trust him. 
for the rest of your life. Persevere. Keep going. Keep trusting him. Keep running to him. Keep getting rid of the idols because the idols will keep cropping up in your lives. So here in the story, chapter 8, I don't want to read the whole thing, but I'll start off with verse 22 here. Judges 8, 22. We see Gideon basically saying, I don't want to be a king, and then he acts like a king, okay? I don't want to be your ruler, and then he acts like a ruler, and he kind of has a heavy hand and lords it over him. So verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And then he said, but I got one idea, okay? Verse 24, Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites, right? So the army they just defeated, these dudes wore serious gold earrings, right? So they collected all the gold earrings off the dead bodies. And Gideon was like, just give me all the gold off the dead bodies. That's all I ask, right? And then it's weird. What does he do? He, he builds a golden ephod, which is, which is really strange. Again, doesn't even translate for us. It's like golden breastplate or golden robe, right? So it's some kind of symbolic something. We don't fully understand what's going on here. We might even give Gideon the benefit of the doubt and say, Gideon intended that they would look to the sign and remember God's victory. And so, you know, maybe you could be positive about it, but the text tells us that the people of God started worshiping this golden idol. It became another false god. And so this is how we have to watch and be on guard that, you know what, we can cut out idols in our lives. We're like, okay, I'm not going to trust in that anymore. And then we erect another false idol and we're like, oh, now I'm going to worship this instead of Jesus. And we need to watch out for that in our lives and, and learn from the, the negative example of Gideon. Man, we got to continue to be faithful, continue to persevere, continue to run to Jesus. These things are going to just crop up in our lives. Human beings are made to worship. I was talking earlier, Chris did a great job teaching on worship yesterday. We're, we're made to worship. Like human beings are worshiping people. You either worship Jesus or you worship something else. That's just what human beings do. So if you're not actively running to Jesus as a lifelong work, then you're going to be setting up these other false idols. Now, another negative here is we also see as the story continues, and I'm going to read all the verses in chapter 8. Again, go back and read these stories. We see that Gideon had 77 sons and multiple concubines, right? Now, this is another confusing thing that if you just listen to what your college professor says about the Bible, you're going to be totally confused. The Bible does not say that that's okay. Just because Old Testament people do this kind of nasty stuff doesn't make it okay, right? Jesus says, oh, it was spelled out in Genesis. Man is made to be married once forever and be faithful. That's God's plan. We're not supposed to have 77 sons. And I guess if you had 77 sons by one wife, I guess it'd be okay. But, you know, pretty much guarantee that you've got multiple concubines, right? And it says that in the text, right? So you're not supposed to have a bunch of concubines, right? That's like a harem. You're not supposed to collect a bunch of wives. Don't do it. If you're tempted, don't do it, right? If you're on your way, stop. This is not the way we are supposed to live. And so again, we just see this principle that the Old Testament often shows these heroes that are doing the wrong thing. We're not supposed to follow everything they do. And it's an example of he's, he's living like a king. He's like, oh, I don't, I don't need to be your king, but let me have all the gold. And let me have a bunch of concubines and a bunch of sons, right? And things just continue to go bad and they they run into idolatry, and the story just starts all over again. That's Judges. It's a sad story over and over again. We want to live differently. We don't want to fall off like that. We want to finish well. One of my favorite verses about finishing well, we just studied in Philippians. In Philippians 3, Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. So that's the thing. I'm not saying finish well so that Jesus will love you. I'm saying finish well because Jesus loves you. Do you see the difference? Paul says, I'm pressing on. I'm trying to finish this race because Jesus has taken hold of me. I'm running to take hold of Jesus because I know Jesus has taken hold of me. He loves me. That's why we commit ourselves to this lifelong work. I found a picture online of Simon Cheprot, or Chepro, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Sorry, Simon. He's from Nigeria. And in 2013, 
he was finishing a race and he was about to win, about to win his second regional title in Nigeria. Uh, and one of his uh, runners, one of his competitors, his enemy, quote unquote, was stumbling, having a hard time finishing the race. And he just couldn't watch him fall. He had to pick him up and help him to finish. I love these stories. There's been so many of these uh, in running. It's a beautiful picture. Man, if I was running the race, I'd be like, I'm winning this race, man. I only got one first medal place ever in my whole life. I want to get another one, right? But that's not him. I, I aspire to be like Simon. I aspire to be like the one that's like looking out for others and serving others instead of just collecting my own glory. Who are you going to be? As you run the race of life, will the race of life being about serving others like Jesus served us first, or will it be about serving yourself? That's the question. That's what it means to finish well as we walk with Jesus. So we've got a lot of ways to do that. And the question just to bring to God in prayer is like, God, we're, what are the new threats to my faith? Some of you may have been walking with Jesus for many years. New threats always crop up. There are new temptations. There are new struggles. What are those new struggles? And offer those to Jesus. Ask for Christian friends to pray for you. Get involved in Christian community. Begin serving others as an, as an active war against the spiritual darkness in your own life and in the life of others. I want to wrap up here. The judges overall are kind of a sad story. The, the judges just, we see these heroes rise up. Great hero, he's awesome. And then they just make terrible mistakes. And I think the overall message of the book of Judges, as I said, judges can be translated as saviors. The book of saviors makes us look at these slimy characters from the Old Testament. They're like, man, they're not the full savior we're longing for. We want a savior that saves to the uttermost. We want a savior that saves completely. And this book and all these stories in the Old Testament, as we see in Hebrews, presses us to run to Jesus, the better Savior, the ultimate judge, the ultimate hero. So the New Testament apostles in the book of Acts, they continually preached, we have this perfect judge, this perfect king. He's not just a local king, a local judge. He's the king of the universe. He rose from the dead, which proved he has the right to judge all people in all places. Come to him and he will show you mercy. He will show you love and grace. Come to Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in communion. God, thank you that you love us. You invite us into relationship with you. You teach us to walk with you by faith. And we just pray that you'd help us. Help us to see your goodness. Uh, help us not to turn from you. Uh, we pray that you'd continue to show us more grace as we see you've, you've done again and again in the Old Testament. You'd help us to turn from idols and to trust your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.